Have you ever hit rock bottom with your life or seemingly felt like you hit rock bottom in your life? Or maybe you say to yourself, man, it cannot possibly get worse than this. I mean, this thing happens after this thing, after this thing, after this thing, and it just keeps piling up. What is going on? It can't get any worse than this until it does. You know, the last two years have been so rough for so many people. We've had disease, death, job loss, economic strain, financial stress, just general anxiety, mental health issues skyrocketing, emotional health issues, families fracturing, marriages struggling, relationships altered, and now we have a war that has the potential to go global. God, where are you? Where is the silver lining in all this? You know what the beautiful thing about hitting rock bottom is? When you hit rock bottom, you have nowhere to look but up. Desperation drops us to our knees. And that's what we see in the life of Moses. Desperation dropped him to his knees necessarily. So we are looking at the life of Moses, the series we're doing this spring. And so we are in the book of Exodus. Go ahead and turn to the book of Exodus in your, on your phones or in your Bibles. Exodus 2 specifically. It's in the Old Testament. Now why would Christians read the Old Testament? Isn't it the Old Testament? Isn't it antiquated? Isn't it so irrelevant? No! It's extremely relevant, and it's beautiful, and it actually contains vital principles, wisdom for life and godliness. But also, it's the backstory for the New Testament. It gives us a fuller appreciation and love and understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah who they anticipated for centuries So everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus in the New. At Bethel, we like to say this. We say it a whole lot. It's all about, come on now, it's all about him, Jesus. What's all about him? Life, this universe, this world, everything, and that includes this, folks. The scriptures are all about him. The Bible is God's redemptive story of mankind through Jesus. So it points to Jesus. So we're looking at a genre of scripture in Exodus called historical narrative. It's storytelling with a purpose. You know, when we went through the book of Romans for three and a half years, we went verse by verse, point by point, and we picked it apart. Kind of how you, like in a lecture, you take down notes for every point. But when you watch a movie, Hopefully you're not taking notes. That would be weird. You just watch it, and every scene has a takeaway. Every scene has something that we digest. And that's how we should look at this. We look at it as various scenes. So we're going to see a few different scenes, each with a takeaway, but we're primarily going to focus on the last few verses of Exodus chapter 2. So here we go. Backstory. What's What's going on up to this point? Here's the recap. God has chosen a particular people, a family, the family of Israel, the people of Israel called the Israelites. And there's a huge famine. And they, because of the famine, have to go to Egypt to get food, to be sustained. And God sustains his people in the midst of this. And God's people grow and thrive. They are blessed by his hand. And they grow to be a great people. Well, the Egyptians, after many years, they've been in Israel has been in Egypt for 400 years, and the Egyptians enslaved them out of fear. What are we going to do about this great people? They're going to rise up against us. Let's enslave them. So they 
are oppressed, they're enslaved by the Egyptians, but they continue to multiply, they continue to grow, they expand. And so Pharaoh comes up with his grand plan of genocide, ethnocide, homicide. He says, we are going to murder every baby boy born among the Hebrews. We're going to take these baby boys and throw them into the Nile River to be killed. And Moses' parents say, uh, no, not on my watch. Thanks, but no thanks. So they make a little basket for baby Moses, make a little ark, if you will, to deliver him through the dangers of the water of the Nile. And they put this baby basket and place it in the Nile. Later, that basket with the baby inside is discovered by one of Pharaoh's daughters. And she opens the basket, and anytime anyone sees a cuddly baby, what do you say? Oh, you guys are good. <laughs> oh, her heart is knit to his. She's in love with this little baby. Love at first sight. And so she adopts him as her own, raises him as her own. Moses, a Hebrew, is adopted by the Egyptians. And this is where we pick up our story in Exodus 2, verse 11. I'm just going to summarize. Moses is older now. Acts 7 says that he's 40 years old. Now, I don't know anyone in here who is middle-aged. Uh, you may be thinking, oh, I'm in my, you know, middle, middle ages, and um, I'm about to go through midlife crisis. Oh, my life has passed me by. So many years wasted. What have I done with my life? Listen, Moses is just now getting going at age 40. God is just now starting the process of refining him. In fact, he doesn't lead God's people out of Egypt, the Israelites, until he's 80. So if even if you're 80 or older, God can still use you no matter what age you are. That's encouraging to me because this year I turned a, a big number. I'm not going to say which one. So Moses is older now, and he, he leaves the palace, it says, to go out to his people. So he's fully aware that he is a Hebrew adopted by the Egyptians. And he wants to check them out. Acts 7.23 says, it came into his heart to visit his brothers. He wanted to see how his people were doing. You know, I wonder if he was fully aware of their plight. Did he, did he really grasp how bad things were? Or was there some naivete, some ignorance of their suffering? Maybe he was in his little princely palace bubble but regardless, something happens in Moses at this point. And he chooses to identify with his people, the slaves over the slave masters, the oppressed over the oppressors. We read in Hebrews 11, 24 and 26, through 26, it says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. What reward? The heavenly reward. So this gives insight into what's going on in Moses' heart. He would rather be mistreated with the people of God than to live in a lap of luxury and taste the ever-fleeting momentary pleasures of sin. This is our Messiah moment, okay? You know, there's so many things that point to Jesus. This points to Jesus Heavenly rewards far exceed anything, anything that this life could offer. And Jesus left it all in heaven so that we could have it all in him. He was forsaken, he was rebuked so that we could be redeemed. 
Moses does the same thing. It says, Moses looked upon their burdens. Quite literally, he saw them with emotion. You know, when you are watching something just overwhelmed with emotion, like the notebook, which I've never seen and never cried about. Uh, <laughs> you're watching some, you know, movie, and it's just, oh, you're overwhelmed with emotion. He saw it, and he's overwhelmed with emotion. I can imagine he's seeing his people with these giant bricks of clay and straw, carrying them heavy, burden on their backs, you know, taking every stumble, every step, sweat dripping from their brow, blood dripping from their back as the whips come crashing, thrashing on their backs, lashes all over them. And he's overwhelmed with emotion. He he saw their heavy burdens of slavery and oppression. They are beaten down. They're worn down. They're without hope. And so he is burdened for their burden. And there's something we need to know about Moses. Moses had this deeply ingrained sense of justice. Three times in chapter 2, it says that he acts to defend the oppressed. He would rise up to, you know, be the hero against the bully, which is really, really good when God is about to call you to lead his people out of oppression. So there is a deep heart burden. If you've ever just had that deep, you know what I'm talking about, a heart burden, a righteous indignation. What happens when you take a two-liter bottle of soda and just shake it up real good? Well, you better not open the bottle cap or things are going to get messy. Now, if you take a Mentos, you guys remember the, the men, what is it, the fresh maker. You take a, a Mentos and you thump, drop it in the two-liter bottle of soda and then you shake it up, what's going to happen? You know, I, I literally, I, I thought about, I love doing illustrations and acting them out here. I thought about literally doing this, like putting up a tarp here and having a two-liter and then dropping the Mentos. But I decided in a last-minute better judgment, thank you, Lord, <laughs> not to do that because you people in the front row would be so mad. It would be like the old comedian Gallagher. Remember him? I mean, you'd just be covered in soda. And Pam Roman, who cleans our uh, church building here, awesome lady. If you see her, give her a high five and a hug because she's amazing. She would be furious with me. Why? What happens when you mix Mentos with soda? Explosion. It's a potent mix. It's an explosive mix. It's not meant to be together because it <clears throat> bubbles over. It explodes. And within Moses, there's this potent explosive mix going on. Compassion for his people and frustration for their plight, their situation, their suffering. Righteous anger was being built up. He was shaken within him. And he was shaking, shaking until it was building up, building up, building up. And we too should be burdened over brokenness. We too should be filled with the same heart burden. I don't know if you've been watching the news. I'm sure everyone in here knows what's going on with Ukraine and Russia. We're watching the news, and you're sitting there on your couch, and you watch as armies invade, as people are killed mercilessly, and compassion should be in our heart for people, for downtrodden, for the marginalized. And then we see their situation, we see what they're going through, and there should be a heart burden, there should be righteous indignation welling up, building up within us. That's good. That's a good tension. That's not bad because it leads to action. 
No one who genuinely has compassion for struggling people in dreadful circumstances can possibly just sit back and go, meh. You can't be okay with that. If God has given you compassion for people and you see their condition, you have to do something. So this is what's going on in Moses. But here's where godly wisdom is needed. Compassion plus frustration without wisdom heads down a path of hastiness. Rash decisions in the short term without regard for the long term can be deadly. And in Moses' circumstance, in his instance, they were exactly deadly. So we need the wisdom of God to guide us, to direct us for best solutions. Moses had righteous anger, and that's good. But the problem is his righteous anger led to the wrong action. Look at the text. He, he sees an Egyptian and this Egyptian taskmaster is just beating on this Hebrew slave, mercilessly beating him to the pulp. I mean UFC style, just, just pounding on him. And now you have the Mentos and Soda effect. Compassion for his people. Righteous indignation against this injustice. And impulsive rage wells up within him at that moment. And he commits a crime of passion. According to Acts chapter 7, 24 and 25, it says, He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Because of the way that's worded, my, this is my hypothesis. I think that the Egyptian taskmaster beat the Hebrew slave to death. And here's Moses. He's watching all this unfold, and it can't, he can't, doesn't sit right with him. He can't just do nothing. And so he kills the Egyptian. In Acts 7, it says Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. So he murders the Egyptian, realizes, oh boy, I did a bad thing. And he tries to cover it up. He buries the Egyptian under the sand, looks around this way and that. Okay, no one saw. Good. I think I got away with it. He tries to take justice into his own hands instead of looking to the God of justice. So Moses understood, he recognized his unique position as a deliverer, but he misunderstood his calling that he was not the deliverer. He attempts delivering his people by the might of man, not by God's strength, not by God's guidance. And so what happens? Well, the same thing that happens anytime we try to take anything into our own hands. When we try to do it on our own, our own strength, our own wisdom, what happens? We fail, and we fail hard. He fails miserably. But here's the nice takeaway. God can use people with sordid pasts. Amen? Isn't that a good gift of grace? God uses people with sordid pasts. Moses is arguably the greatest figure in the Old Testament, amazing man of faith, and he murdered a dude. <laughs> and I mean, I, you know, I, I talk to people all the time and I'll hear someone say, well, you know, God would never redeem me. He would never save me. If he knew the things I've thought, the things I've said, the things I've done, would never save me. I mean, I'm garbage. I'm just, I'm broken. I'm tainted. I'm damaged goods. 
God would never save me, let alone use me. Well, guess what? God does know you. He does know everything you've done, thought, and said, and he still saved you. He still sent Jesus to the cross. And oh, by the way, yes, he can use you. Because have you ever murdered someone? No show of hands, please. (laughs) Probably not. But apparently, even if you have, God can still use you. Now, after some humble repentance and faith and refining, of course, which Moses is about to go through, but God can still use you. Don't tell God what he can and can't do. He gets glory and I think delights in using broken, tainted people. Now look at verse 13. So apparently Moses thinks he got away with it because the next day he goes out maybe to see his people again and he sees two guys fighting once more. But this time it's two Hebrew slaves and one is just beating on the other nice. I mean, just laying into the other one. They're duking it out and, and, and they're arguing. And so Moses, as the peacemaker, tries to break up the fight. Hey, oh, what are you doing? What are you doing? Stop. Why are you fighting? Don't you know you are brothers? You are fellow countrymen. Can't we all just get along? Why are you beating on him? And the aggressor, the one beating on the other, says, well, who, who made you our leader? Who made you judge over us? Now, the answer to that question in that moment is no one yet. See, this is foreshadowing because God would call Moses to lead his people. He would call him to be judge over them. It just wasn't his time yet. And so this man says, well, you're going to kill me like you did the Egyptian the other day? What are you, judge, jury, and executioner? Uh Uh-oh. Moses has a freak-out moment. He realizes, oh no, apparently someone did see what I did yesterday. Somebody called Dateline. (laughs) Law and Order Special Victims Unit or whatever show you watch, rumors spread, and they spread fast. News travels fast. In fact, the news reaches the the ears of Pharaoh, and he's incensed in anger. He's infuriated. He wants to kill Moses for killing one of his taskmasters, And Moses knows this, and so he runs for his life. And he makes it to a land called Midian. If you look at the screens here, here's a little map of Midian. You can see the red line. So on the left is Egypt, okay? And Moses does this journey, this pilgrimage, this exile from Egypt all the way east to the right in Midian over there. The middle there is the Sinai Peninsula. It's buoyed by the Gulf of Suez and the Gulf of Aqaba that both feed into the Red Sea, which is, you can't see, the Red Sea is below there. But he goes all the way over there, as far away as he can get. Now, if you've been to the Middle East, it is rocky. Uh, It's desolate, at least large parts of it. Caves, no vegetation. I mean, he has nothing over there, but he is running for his life, getting as far away as you can. If you go to the next slide there, you see there, it's, okay, so there's Egypt, Sinai Peninsula, which comes into place majorly later, and then you have Midian on the right. See, when you take matters into your own hands, when you act foolishly, you will reap the results. Not all difficulties are the results of sin. I get that. I mean, that's the whole, what the whole book of Job is about. But people going through self-imposed troubles brought on by their own foolish decisions often fail to understand why. Years ago when we lived in Nevada, I was meeting with a guy at our church and uh, meeting with him for counseling. And 
He goes, God, Jared, I don't know what God is doing. I don't know, what, I don't know what's, what's up. Come to find out, he had blown uh, every paycheck they had going to the casinos, blew it all. Blew through his savings, his marriage because of that was in shambles. He was a mess. He was a wreck. And I remember I'm sitting across from him and he goes, Jared, why did God do this to me? Why did God allow me to blow all my money at the casino? And I'm just like, really? <laughs> Our capacity for just being so blinded by, can I be honest, our stupidity is staggering. He put himself in that mess. He dug himself into that. And that's, here's the thing. God, when we make stupid decisions, when we foolishly follow sin, God is like, okay. And he lets us reap the repercussions. But what's incredible is that the Lord still uses the repercussions of our stupidity for his purposes. And the Lord allowed Moses to flee Egypt for Midian to be in the wilderness for an extended season because he needed to be. God needed to break him and shape him and mold him to lead his people. And God refines us in the desert season. Some of you are in a desert season and you don't know why. Probably one reason, possibly, is God is using that to refine you, to shape you, to mold you. God refines us in the desert seasons, even if those desert seasons are self-inflicted because we try to do things our way instead of his. So this leads to verse 16. In 16 through 22, basically Moses, he's, he's, he ends up in Midian, and he sits down next to a well. And he's probably dejected, and he's depressed. He had to flee from his country with his tail tucked between his legs. He's sullen. And he's thinking to himself, what just happened? I was supposed to deliver my people, and now I have massively made things worse. He goes from privilege and prestige in the palace with all the comforts in the greatest nation in the world at that time, the greatest empire, to the obscurity of criminal exile in the desert. And so he's sitting there at the well. And while he's at the well, these seven little girls come up, seven daughters, and they have with them the buckets, their pails, they're going to the well to draw water, and you know, we have a couple little girls, and I imagine these little girls are cute, and they have their little buckets, their pails, and they're, they're going to go to the well to get the water for their flocks, their sheep, and as they do that, these machismo jerks come in, these other shepherds, these bullies, and they bully their way in, move it girls, and they shove the girls aside, they drive the girls away, and they push them aside and they draw water for themselves to hog all the water for their own flocks. Now Moses, again, remember, he's sitting there next to the well and he's watching all this happen. And remember what happens? Mentos, soda, compassion, frustration. He sees these girls and they're being mistreated and now you have righteous indignation, righteous anger, welling up again, welling up, welling up, welling up. And Moses can't take it anymore and he rises up knight in shining armor. And he goes to save these girls. He goes to deliver them. So he drives out these bullies, these shepherds. He pushes them away. He doesn't kill them like he did the Egyptian. He actually does something spectacular, out of the norm. He bends down to serve these girls. He, he draws water from the well for them. He waters the sheep for them. So the self-imposed shepherd, self-imposed savior stoops down as a selfless 
servant. So what made the difference? Moses was humbled. I mean massively humbled. God needed him to be humbled. Being exiled from your home, from your comforts, from everything you knew will do that to you. He needed to be broken to be malleable and usable for God. God needed and wanted every drop of self-confidence and self-dependence drained from Moses. And so the girls get water for their sheep, and they go back to their tribe. They go back to their father, Reuel, also named Jethro in other verses. And they tell their dad what happened. And their dad is like, that's awesome. Where is he? Let's honor him. Oh, right. We, we, we left him at the well. You did what? This man saved my daughters and, and you left him? He wants to meet this man who saved his girls, who they thought was an Egyptian, probably because he dressed like an Egyptian, he talked like an Egyptian, he walked like an Egyptian, (laughs) because he was raised as an Egyptian. But this is important, because Egyptians were known to the tribes in the wilderness as an arrogant people. Oh, they were so prideful. They had superiority complex They were up on this pedestal. Oh, you people down there, so beneath us. You desert folks, you sand dwellers. They would look down on others, especially those who lived out in the wilderness. And so it would be significant for an Egyptian to rescue them and then to serve them humbly, come to their aid. It showed that he had unique, special character. So Reuel rightly wants to meet him. And he says, bring him over. We're going to celebrate. We're going to have a feast. And so they do. They have a feast for Moses. They celebrate this hero. And then Moses, for many years, dwells there with Reuel and his family and apparently gained favor with him because Reuel gives his daughter Zipporah to Moses to be his wife. And they have a son together named Gershom. Now, Gershom, uh, the verbal root of this name means chased away which is significant. Moses was chased away from his people and his home. He chased away the shepherds who tried to chase away his future wife. Gershom literally means resident alien there. So ger means foreigner. Shom means there. That's why Moses says, I am a foreigner in a foreign land. So though he found a family, though he's keenly aware that he's not home with his people, he is a sojourner who just does not fit in. Side note, folks, we, according to 1 Peter and according to Hebrews 11, we are foreigners in this world. We are all sojourners. We are exiles in this world. This world, at least as it is now, is not our home. Now, we will be in the new heaven and the new earth if you trust in Jesus, but this world, as it is now, with its values and priorities, is not our home. Heaven is our home with our Lord and Savior forever and ever. And if you're excited about that, you would probably say, come on now. And this is why, because we are sojourners in exile in this world, this is why we should also compassionately minister to refugees and immigrants and foreigners among us. I'm not trying to be political. I could care less about politics. I'm not a political person. But the Bible commands, Old Testament and New, to minister to those who are unlike us, to minister to the refugees, to minister to those who maybe aren't in their home, who feel unsettled. I think of the Afghan refugees who are still, there's some in this area, in this region from last year. 
We have a ministry partner, Welcome Network, who it's in, they're located in Northwest Indiana. They're one of our ministry partners that, that they specifically minister to and help refugees and immigrants. I think of, they're saying in Ukraine, Ukrainian refugees, we're probably going to see five to six million Ukrainian refugees across the world. There are going to be probably some in this area. How can we show them compassion? See, it's not where Moses was meant to spend the rest of his days, and he knows that. His heart's unsettled, and so God is preparing Moses on God's timeline. So rest in God's timing. And lastly, this leads to the last few verses. Let me just read them. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob. Jacob, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. There's this parenthetical paragraph that almost seems out of place here. So there's a new pharaoh, a new king of Egypt. Yes, maybe he'll be more lenient, no more slavery, no more oppression. Maybe he'll lighten the load. No, things are worse. In their slavery, in their struggle, the people groan and they cry out for help. Folks, they are literally praying as we talk about prayer this week, they're praying. Groaning is an outward expression of pain from deep within it. It wells up, working its way out. If you've ever been laying in bed and you're tossing and turning, you have this anxious thought that is tormenting you. You, you can't let it go. And you're tossing and turning, you're just, ugh, ugh. It's, you're groaning. Maybe you're on your knees, weeping with Kleenex, tears flowing. You just let out a guttural sound of grief. You are groaning. They were groaning and they cried out in their desperation. They loudly, intensely request help from God. It says that their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, very deliberately wording there. So their prayers ascended to God. In fact, this description of prayer is used throughout the Bible, like in Revelation. It says the prayers of the saints rises up. It ascends to God like a sweet-smelling aroma. Now, if you trust in Jesus, you're a saint. Do you realize that? Saint means called out one, holy one, one made holy by God. It's one who is in Christ by faith. It's not like, oh, saints with the halo, St. Matthew, St. Bartholomew. Listen, if you're a saint, can I just show of hands, how many of you are a saint in here? Come on now. If you are in Christ, you're a saint. And so our prayers rise up to God like sweet-smelling incense. He delights in the prayers of his people. Think of the most pungent, intense perfume you've ever smelled. Like, you know, you know you've been around a guy who just got out of the gym, and he, got, he took that Axe body spray and... And you're like, hey, dude, long time no see. And it's just overwhelming. The thing about an intense smell is you can't ignore it. I don't care if you have COVID and you've lost your sense of smell. You can't ignore it. Their prayer of lament here for rescue came to the only one who could actually do something about it. And the true deliverer would not and could not ignore them. That's why we see in verses 24 and 25, God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. This repetition of verbs here underscores the personal nature of the receiver who hears our prayers. So let's look at the, each of these briefly. God heard. Sometimes we pray and it seems like our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, bouncing off the walls. We seem to encounter the silence of God. 
as a church family here, we're reading through individually the Gospel of Mark through the Bible app, just a few verses every day. Shameless plug, if you're not yet a part of this, we're halfway through, just join us. There's some signs around the building, you scan the QR code. Uh, there's a link I'm going to send out today in email and on social media. You can join us. We're, we start part four tomorrow. And if you've been a part of this, keep going. We want to have a regular uh, rhythm of habit of grace of digging into God's word. But a few days ago in the devotional in, in the Gospel of Mark, we're, we're reading through it and, it, and it said this line. I love this. Patient faith withstands God's silence. His silence is not an indication of indifference. So if you are suffering or it seems like God is silent, where are you? It doesn't mean he's given up on you. He hears you. Listen to me. Some of you need to hear this. He hears you. I don't think you heard me. He hears you. Pray as if you know God hears you because he he does. Don't give up hope. God honors persevering faith. So God heard Second, God remembered. Wait, did, did, did God forget his people? Was he unaware of their suffering, unconcerned? No. Remember here is a colloquialism for honor his covenant, honor his promise to his people. This was not the covenant recollected, it was the covenant applied. So earlier, Moses rose up by his own hand to try to be his people's deliverer. Now, it's God's turn. Now, God would rise up and deliver defend, save his people. In other words, it's go time. God had seen them suffer enough. Their cry for rescue came to him, and God always keeps his word. God promises, God remembers, and God acts. So God heard, God remembered. Third, God saw. In Genesis 16, you have the story of Abraham and Sarah. God promised them a son. That son would uh, be the start of a multitude of nations. But the problem is, Abraham and Sarah are really old. They're past the age of childbirth, and they've been waiting a long time, still no son, still nothing. And so Sarah is like, well, Abraham, how about you take my maidservant Hagar and have a child with her? And Abraham's like, okay. And so, <laughs> so they, sure enough, have a child. She's pregnant. Now, Hagar, the Egyptian servant, is pregnant, and Sarah is fear, filled with jealousy and rage, and so she drives out the Egyptian servant, Hagar, don't miss the parallels here, just like Moses was driven out, drives her out into the wilderness. And she too finds herself as a stranger in a strange land. She too stops to rest near a well of water. And it is there where the Lord finds her and speaks to her and promises her great blessing. And so she names that place Be'er Lohoi Ro'i, the well of the living one who sees me. He is El Roi, the God who sees me. He sees us. He is the God who sees you. And you might be in that desert place. You might be in that wilderness. Maybe you are at the well, if you will, a brief respite in the desert. But either way, you've been crying out. You've been groaning. God, where are you? I've only been met with silence. Folks, he sees you. Which leads to the last thing. Look at the last two verses of this chapter. God knew. Knew what? Them. He knew them. He knew his people. He heard their cries. He heard their groanings. And he knew their hearts. He knew their motives. He knew their values. And he he knew that they sought him in desperation. And God knows you better than you ever will. 
God knows your suffering better than you will, his, your troubles, your trials, your heart, your mind. He knows you better than you can ever imagine. So these verses, the end of chapter 2, this is the hinge point of this narrative. Because in chapters 1 and 2, dominant themes, slavery, oppression, death, now the emphasis shifts to deliverance and triumph. It's go time for God. It's deliverance time. It's time for the Lord to act in accord with his covenant promise to his people, which leads to the next two chapters, the burning bush. No spoiler alert. Just come back next week. But essentially, God reassures Moses of his presence. I'm with you. And that leads to the last significant prayer point. God is with us. Probably the most essential breakthrough in our prayer lives, it's the truth that the Lord uses over and over and over to conquer our fears and anxieties. I am with you, I am with you, I am with you. Joshua, the successor of Moses in Joshua chapter 1, is terrified. He's full of worry and fear and anxiety. And God says, don't fear. Be courageous because I'm with you. Isaiah 41.10, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God is with us. He sees us. He knows us. He remembers us. He hears us because he's with us. He's near to us. So cry out to God because he sees your suffering. He hears your groaning. He knows your heart. Folks, he's listening. He's listening. 